You're listening to the Charge Forward audio blog by Chargebacks 911, bringing you the latest in payments and fraud. To learn more about how Chargebacks 911 can help you reduce chargebacks and recover revenue lost to fraud, visit us online at chargebacks911.com. This episode is a replay of a webinar entitled Picking Out the Bad Apples and features experts from Chargebacks 911 and Jumio. Okay, I want to welcome everyone to the webinar. My name is Jared Wright. I'm the marketing director here at Chargebacks 911. Um, for those of you familiar, unfamiliar with Chargebacks 911, we help merchants by identifying and preventing chargebacks before they happen, and then managing their disputes for the chargebacks that we were unable to prevent. Um, presenting today from Chargebacks 911 is Craig McClure. Um, he is our Director of Relationship Management. I invited Craig because he has some insider knowledge on today's topic. Um, he worked at Visa before joining us on our team here at Chargebacks 911, and he's been in the payment space for a while. How, how, how long have you been in the payment space, Craig? Uh, about 17 years, Jared. 17 years. Okay, great. So so he's got a wealth of knowledge and uh, is, is really better apt to talk about this today. So I'm just going to be the uh, the MC today. Um, and as part of that responsibility, I am very excited to uh, welcome uh, Johnson Ha, who is the head of sales and business development at Jumio. Um, Johnson, do you want to take a little bit and tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what Jumio does? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you, Jared and Craig. Uh, pleasure to connect with you again. A uh, little background about myself, I've been in the technology space for over 10, 10 plus years now. Started my career in finance, uh, started my career in finance with a company called Sybase. During that time, we were acquired by SAP and then moved over to advertising sales. And for the last eight years, spent my time at Jumio. So a little bit about Jumio, we provide AI powered end-to-end -end identity and uh, a EK, EKYC compliance platform. Essentially, what we do and build is helping digital business verify and, and authenticate their customers. So for financial customers like banks and, and fintechs, we're helping them to verify who their users are in a completely digital manner. For help, Within the healthcare space, we're helping to authenticate patients and doctors, and we work with a ton of marketplaces globally. So uh, you may have gone through our process when you booked a room on Airbnb or rented a car on Turtle. So at the core of what we do, we help digital business to verify their consumers in a completely digital manner. Okay, great. Um, now we're gonna get started here in just a minute, uh, but before we do, I wanted to go over how this webinar will be structured. <clears throat> the first part of the webinar will include a short presentation from um, Johnson and Craig. Um, this portion of the webinar will be fairly visual, so it's important that if you can, uh, you close your other windows and give us your attention for that part. Um, the second portion of the webinar will be a Q&A where we answer many of the questions that were submitted. Um, this portion will be less visual, so it's okay if you have stuff to do, if you just wanna kind of listen to that part. Um, Please also feel free to submit any questions that you have during the webinar. Um, we promise to answer any questions submitted. Um, if we're not able to get to it live, then we will make sure to answer by email after this webinar. So if um, you have a question about anything discussed today or something occurs to you, please just enter it into the, uh, the chat. Um, also, this uh, webinar will be available for replay starting tomorrow. Um, we'll, we'll send that link out to everybody. Um, not all the Q&A necessarily will be included in the recording, however, so we encourage uh, you to kind of stay with us today so that you're sure to get the maximum value out of this event. Um, <clears throat> lastly, just a reminder that this and other webinars will eventually be released in audio form on our podcast. Um, you can just search for Charge Forward, all one word, with Chargebacks 911, however you listen to podcasts, and you'll be able to listen to um, some, of, some of the past webinars that we've done there. 
Okay, before I get started, I'm going to hand this uh, over to Craig in just a minute, but um, if uh, this is the first uh, webinar that uh, you've attended where I've hosted, um, I like to start these webinars with what I call a dumb question. Um, the idea sort of generated because I have the opportunity to speak with different experts, and I felt like I should really take better advantage of the situation and, uh, you know, sort of force myself to ask a kind of a dumb question that I have that I have a, a genuine curiosity about. So, um, Johnson, do you mind if um, I sort of embarrass myself and uh, ask you a dumb question? Sure, sure thing. Okay. Um, okay, so, so I, you know, I feel like this question might actually be pretty dumb, so I apologize in advance um, if, uh, if I say anything silly. But, um, you know, I was going through the website, and I noticed that um, um, Jumio talks a lot about AI, um, artificial intelligence to the layperson. Um, and um, this is a topic that has sort of fascinated me um, sort of abstractly. Uh, it seems like I've listened to a few podcasts and listened to some TED Talks that talk about, you know, ideas like the singularity or kind of in terms of general intelligence. And um, I've also realized that a lot of times when I'm talking to technology companies, AI is really more of a buzzword than um, anything that, that um, you know, represents the future or some sophisticated technology. Um, so. I guess um, my assumption is that Jumio is sort of somewhere in this, the, the spectrum between, you know, a simple if then if then that uh, program and uh, something uh, advanced, but not quite as advanced as maybe the Terminator. Am, am I right in assuming that? Yeah, absolutely. I, and I'll, I'll do my best to take a stab at it. Great. So yeah, that's my question. I mean, so when when you guys say AI, what do you what do you what do you uh, specifically what do you guys what do you guys mean by that? Yeah, so AI, and we kind of apply that to machine learning as well. So everything that we do uh, and we built for the last 10 plus years here at Jumio is we use AI machine learning models as a foundation uh, and how we built our core technology, right? So in a very simple form, you could think of Jumio as a digital bouncer. We're verifying and authenticating government-issued IDs from across the globe. So we're since, since 2010, when we wrote out our, our first product, uh, we processed over 250 million IDs. So governments, passports, um, government IDs and driver's licenses from across the globe. So in China, in the US, California, or Florida, we've seen millions and millions of IDs. And through that process, we have applied supervised machine learning models to determine that the California driver's license, for example, looks real. So looking at various security intricacies on these IDs to determine that the overall font, the data positions, the overall template itself looks authentic. So in addition to that, every transaction that we process on a daily basis, we audit 10% of our transactions to make sure that we're you know, applying machine learning models and tagging the results of these IDs. So they're built on good data. Uh, and that's how we differentiate ourselves in the market. We really focus on making sure that we're using quality data to build our AI machine learning models to help digital businesses, whether you're a bank or a healthcare or online marketplace, to verify government-issued IDs from across the globe. Hmm. So, so by supervised AI, you, you mean um, that's you're talking about you, you have an audit process where um, you double check the AI and just make sure that the um, the technology and the rule sets and everything are, are generating the results that you expect. Exactly. So making sure that output is is accurate and 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 uh, making sure that the information is clear for us to analyze ID types, right? So you can misconstrue an S as a five on ID very easily. So 
um, whatever data you put in, you want to make sure that the information is accurate as you're building your models upon that. So if you're building, like if you, if you build a house on stilts, more than likely it's going to break, right? But you want to make sure that you have the right foundation, like a concrete slab to build your core services on. Okay. And how do you guys, you know, I don't want to go too far down this, but this is, you know, I'm genuinely kind of interested. How do you guys, um, I imagine that you, you have a fair amount of resources dedicated to keeping up with the, you know, the different ID changes in the different states. You know, I know that Florida just completely changed what our IDs look like. Um, yeah. Is that something you guys do or does it does it sort of just automatically work um, with regardless of what the idea is? Or do, do you have to know? Yeah, we would have to know for us. We, we have partners that we work closely with. So when California issues a new ID, all across the US, the real ID is becoming more important as well. So that completely changes the overall templates of these IDs. We get knowledge of that and then we build that into our models, right? So making sure in your case, Florida, there's many different variations of Florida ID types. There's ID cards, there's driver's license. And if you're under 21, in many case, many states, the ID is horizontal in nature. So yeah. uh, we get aware of these things to make sure that we can help our clients verify any type of IDs that are processed through their system. Hmm. That's, that's amazing. That seems like a, a large undertaking. It definitely is. And we have a global team to support that. Great. All right, Craig. Um, did, did you want to you want to kind of take over and um, you know take things from here? Sure. Thank, thanks, Jared. Um, yeah. So I was thinking about new new account fraud and, and how that kind of really applies to to car payments, um, which is more of our bread and butter here at Chargebacks Nine One One. And I was thinking about new account fraud as as a as, as someone who accepts cars being about a new customer first of all, and also an existing customer having a new card. Both of those should be identified as high risk or, or higher risk events uh, in accepting payments. Now, a little history lesson. Um, I think everyone understands that fraud is is kind of endemic in the in the card industry. It's always going to exist and there's always a tension between the convenience and ease of using our card payments instruments versus, you know, any need to introduce blocks, friction, stops which uh you know customers themselves hate and equally retailers and merchants hate, hate hate more where we have you know huge dropout from from shopping experiences so the balance is always in the middle right so i mean historically you know with card present uh that has evolved kind of nicely to deal with with fraud there from magnetic stripes and signatures through to chips and pins and that's kind of taken more than 20 years to get to where it is today and in doing so we've, we've kind of moved most of the fraud out of card present but and into card not present as a result but also as well as moving the fraud into card not present we've also you know more than more than 1000 percent grown uh the card not present volume since about 2000 so um the problem is 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 huge. So in in dealing with card not present fraud, we've we've tended to introduce iterative changes, which have a little bit of a dent, but are quickly undone by fraudsters. So you know everyone's familiar with the little numbers on the back of the plastic card, the card verification value. Th those are you know great. They prove in theory you have the card, but actually they don't because that becomes a commodity which is valuable to a fraudster. And uh, you know all I need to do is buy that or have access to it, and I can can spoof my way through a transaction. Um, address verification, I mean, you know, great, great tool to check that the, the address the customer's given you in theory matches the account. It's not foolproof and it's certainly not uh, not great if you're sending items to a different address. Um, and also there, there comes with it a liability um, in, in the chargeback scheme, which I can talk about a little bit later. 
Then we invented in the industry 3D Secure. Now, you know, this was invented uh, and introduced in about 2001. So it's been around for almost 20 years. And 3D Secure, um, you know, commonly known as uh, Verified by Visa or MasterCard Secure, um, you know, initially relied on static data. Um, so you had to punch a password in when you made a transaction. So not only was I introducing a break in the sales process to pop up a box, which sometimes worked, sometimes didn't work, was out of sequence with the merchant. Is it genuine? Is that pop up someone else? Generally, and then I didn't know the password. So I've got to drop out, reset the password or register for the service. You know, all, all around that is, has been, uh, I, I hesitate to use the word disaster, but it's not been great. And, and therefore, people have not enjoyed that service. It has not had uh, anything like the adoption that it really should have had as a fraud prevention measure. So all of that around, and then at the same time, we're pushing liability down to people who are who are not doing secure behavior. So your choice as a person accepting cards as a merchant is either introduce the 3D secure process and you know experience the bad customer service that goes with that and experience the drop in sales that probably goes with that, or live with fraud and chargebacks. And that has been the truth of our industry for um, for for the last uh, 10 to 15 years. We can shuffle off to the next slide, Jared, that'd be great. So things change and we're getting better. So both card issuers and, and merchants are using data to be smarter at making decisions. So we're not just relying on very, very straightforward, can I have the money, can I not have the money decisions? We can be smarter about lo looking at the customer's location, not just based on where the browser is, but also if we know like the information about their mobile phone handset or uh, location of their IP address, we can understand um, that there's a greater propensity for that customer to be who they say they are. Um, we're also using, I mean, so there's tons of machine learning and AI, which Johnson's referred to already, but learning about customer spending patterns, what looks unusual um, and, and things like that as good transaction indicators. And then in the last couple of years, the industry has been introducing a, a new version of 3D Secure. So um, a version of 3D Secure that enables and codifies in the card payment system uh, the use of two-factor authentication broadly uh, to authenticate customers. So it's not just about static passwords or clunky experiences. 3D Secure can be more about, hey, I can authenticate you in a mobile phone experience as you're shopping. I can authenticate you using um, something you may already have as part of a digital banking experience. So the thing becomes a little less intrusive, but more secure. And we're introducing the element of something that the customer has. So I need to know that, uh, that they have the card or they have the device, something they know, so a PIN or a pass, and also something that they can generate. So a dynamic password, a text message password, um, something of that nature. So I guess this is all lovely, but I think what we're seeing is that the transaction liability framework, so who's paying for all the fraud, is generally moving towards, and, and, and will increasingly do so, move towards those who are not behaving securely. So as we make, the security journey easier for customers and more familiar for them and you know more attractive for issuing card issuing banks to 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 deploy to their customers then the job falls upon those accepting cards the acquirers the psps the merchants to make those tools work um, and in not doing so not only will the fraud always flow to the least secure party that, that happens anyway but the liability for the fraud will also fall there so it's for this reason that that I guess there are two things before I talk about how regulators are getting involved, but it's really about, you know, upping your game. So be, being way more on top of what authentication means. 
and it's not it doesn't mean you have to become an expert it's about deploying solutions there are tons of providers out there you know we, we have a, a a part to play in understanding the behavior of customers uh who, who perhaps generate chargebacks um and also how we can prevent them but there are also lots of other solutions in the market for looking at customer behavior um so thinking about how how this authentication piece will, will, will move forward i want to just touch on on what the regulator is doing and this is a little bit of a european story if i can move to the next slide jared thank you um and it's a european story but it has a global impact which is why it's relevant here so the the payment services directive is, is without without boring anybody is a, a big piece of legislation which essentially standardizes payments in the european union part of that is about introducing the concept of strong customer authentication now originally this was every single transaction in europe must be two-factor authenticated no exceptions job done that works great if you're sending corporate payments or you know, people are logged in online and doing payments and, and it's all lovely and a large value. But what it didn't really think about was card payments and, and, the, and the ubiquity of card payments and introducing two-factor authentication as a mandatory step in every single e-commerce or card not present transaction is, uh, is, is industry ending almost, but um, you know, maybe not quite so dramatic, but it certainly is uh, massive. It has a it has a global touch because there's a concept of a one leg in or one leg out transaction. So if one of the parties in the transaction, either the issuer, the acquirer, the PSP, the merchant, the cardholder, whoever it is, is in Europe, then in theory, the strong customer authentication mandate applies. Now, massive caveat, there's a lot of greyness around all of this. The the whole concept of every transaction being subject to this. Uh, should have really been in place about two years ago. There have been a number of delays, mainly because the banks are, are not understanding how to do it. Everyone's a bit sceptical about going first with a very, very disruptive customer experience. Um, and also we've been working out some exemptions. So how do people get around this? So I think the, 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 the piece with this is that regulators across the world are looking at Europe and how it has done this one will it deliver a big benefit in reducing risk in car payments and in payments in general and then can it be applied in other markets and equally you know our our, our friends and partners in the global card network so visa mastercard amex and the others are also thinking about how they make what has previously been a very very global system with global standards work when there are big regional differences about how customers are authenticated and this all comes into focus when we consider that this year um, in some markets, more than 95% of payments were being done remotely, which is, you know, a function of the of the pandemic, but is uh, is an exceptional situation um, from a fraud perspective. So I'll quickly just talk about exemptions, um, which kind of applies if you're if you're doing business in Europe. Then there are exemptions if you are if your transactions are below 30 euros. So that covers a lot of face-to-face -face transactions, like contactless transactions as well. Um, we also think about customers whitelisting transactions. So if you can get a customer to whitelist you as a, as a retailer or a merchant on, on a trusted list of providers, you're exempt from having to uh, make an SCA attempt on that customer. Great, um, good luck with convincing the customer to do that. Um, and also if your payment services provider has low fraud rates, they can apply for an exemption to apply the, the two-factor authentication. So, for example, if a PSP can say that their fraud rate is below 
0.13% is one of the ratios, then they can apply for an exemption so that anything below 100 euro or equivalent uh, can be exempt. Now that will create some movement in the market as people move around providers looking for someone with the lowest rate for the kind of business they're doing. Um, and there's also a big question about how friendly fraud fits into this because the regulator has indicated that where there is friendly fraud, and I will define that now as um, reported fraud, where we can identify that actually it is the customer, it's the first party customer who has made that choice, probably because they know that there's a chargeback recovery event, probably because they've done it before, and probably because it's been very easy, then those can be used to reduce the, the fraud thresholds as well. And some of the work we do at Chargebacks 911 is all about uh, friendly fraud. So fraud chargebacks make up about 70% of total chargebacks. Then in that, uh, somewhere between 50 and 65%, depending on the, the sector that you operate in, will be friendly fraud. So where it is the, 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 the genuine, if you like, customer um, has instigated that chargeback. And some of the stuff that we're talking about throughout this webinar about uh, new account fraud and, and authenticating customers at the first point helps to reduce the risk of friendly fraud overall. So I guess my message is be ready for all of this. If, you, if you've not thought about upping your game on authentication, whether it is about new customers, new cards from new customers or new cards from existing customers and in general being being aware of what's going on in the market and, and looking at some of these changes then then those are those are my messages today jared all right all right um johnson yeah uh craig uh wonderful and i think i definitely agree with you just making sure that businesses or merchants up their game in terms of making sure that they are mitigating the amount of uh, online risk and fraud through their platform. But as a starting point, I, I definitely want to just start out with defining what new account fraud really is. Is is uh, if a hacker potentially a fraudster using another person's personal information and good credit rating to open up an account and borrow money using fake credentials, right? So um, the way we see it is that a lot of fraud, actually um, new account fraud occurs in the first 90 days in which it is open. And 48% of all fraud stems from accounts that are typically less than one day old. Um, and what's really fueling the growth of new account fraud, I think you're going to see more and more of this over the, over the span of the next couple uh, several months. And you've seen it uh, with the pandemic because a lot of businesses are becoming more digital. And that allows a, a entry point and a vector point for a lot of sophisticated fraudsters to really compromise accounts uh, and create fraudulent accounts using personal information. And what's really stemming this is that you're seeing a number of data breaches every quarter um, within, for example, Facebook and Marriott, over 500 million records, half a billion records are, that are being exposed and readily available in the dark web. In 2017, Equifax had over 150 million records. So PII information, first names, last names, social security numbers in many cases. And really, this is really increasing the losses for a lot of online merchants, banks, and, and retailers from across uh, the globe, I would say. So it's not specific for the US or Europe, but I think this, this really applies globally. And in 2019, the Federal Trade Commission uh, saw that there was over 650,000 cases that were reported of identity theft. I've, I've been a victim of this, my credit card, I would say every six months gets compromised, right? So uh, it always gets flagged. And there's a lot of controls that banks and uh, financial organizations are putting in place to flag this transaction, but it's very imperative for any consumer to audit their transactions on a monthly basis. Make sure that if you did make that purchase, because uh, I, I would say uh, a large 
population of users uh, don't really look at the at their transactions on their uh, bank statement. So I think this is good practice, but also a way for us to make sure that we mitigate fraud and risk for any type of platform. And then, um, sorry about that. And then identities are for sale. If you go on the dark web, you could buy social security numbers for fairly cheap credit card information for as low as 25 cents and usernames and passwords. So um, you could think of this as a dark web, as an Amazon marketplace for you to steal and, and for sophisticated fraudsters to steal identities, right? They're, they're capturing really relevant information uh, and using that data to disguise themselves as potentially good customers for any retailer. Um, so it's definitely important and for us. What we want to do is to help mitigate that. How can identity verification reduce new account fraud online? And the ultimate goal is there's this fine spectrum. When you have four, more fraud detection in place, there's a compromise of user conversion. And for us, what we want to be able to build out and what we have built out for a number of our customers is identity verification nirvana. So on the left side, you think of in-person verification. If you go into a bank today, you're speaking to a, a customer service or a bank teller, you're verifying uh, yourself by a government issued ID, and that person really is looking at you. Albeit, that's a poor user experience for consumers that are looking to establish a new account. They have to drive 15 to 20 minutes to a local branch uh, or a retailer to establish that experience. On the other side, you have automated verification uh, solutions. So using data, data-centric models, such as just first names, last name, or social security numbers, which is automated, but you really don't have a high level of assurance of that is indeed Johnson Ha or Jared or Craig. So for us, we, we really wanna be able to build, we built some models to help have higher assurance, but also a great user experience. So, so when, if someone is looking to establish a new checking account or deposit account, they could do though fairly instantly, but also in a digital uh, manner. So how identity verification works for us today is that a user, if, imagine you walk into a bank where you open up a, a bank uh, application online and you wanna uh, establish a checking account or savings accounts or even a credit card. A user captures a bona fide government issued ID, whether it be a passport, a driver's license or, or an ID card. Subsequently thereafterwards, they have the option to take a selfie of themselves. So. Um, that user really looks to the camera uh, and allows them to take a picture of themselves in which we could corroborate that selfie, uh, lack of better terms, to the portrait image on your ID. So California's driver's license or Florida State uh, document or US passport or UK passport. And then you wanna make sure that you, uh, for us, we built some liveness detection capabilities that is NIST certified to determine that someone's ID is indeed real and live. And at the end of the day, making sure that you have a definitive decision, right? Making sure that you have a yes or a no on that specific transaction and not a maybe answer because that really doesn't provide any value and based on our experience with a lot of our clients and merchants that we work with. And four, four key considerations when any type of business is looking to invoke identity verification in a workflow is, you know, having a very seamless user experience, right? Uh, to increase that user conversion. So guiding that user very much like an Uber experience, it's important to know where you are in the process and how quickly you get completed. I think why a lot of apps like Uber are successful because they're giving and informing that user where they are within that journey, right? So if I wanted to establish a bank account, I wanna know within five minutes that I have a deposit account available to me if I go through this process of capturing my ID, right? So having a fast verification and, and, and user experience is 
dramatic in terms of driving conversion. But also when you're dealing with a digital environment, you want to have bank grade security, right? You're passing personal information through the through the web. So making sure that the a provider has the appropriate security controls to manage information, whether it's sent, stored, uh, or retained on behalf of the client is within the scope of PCI or ISO 27001 or SOC 2, right? And then when it comes to compliance, Craig had mentioned this with PSD2 and, uh, and GDPR and, and in California is the CCPA, making sure that you're managing the information accurately and, and, and storing that information as appropriate based on privacy laws that are, are being imposed uh, globally. So making sure that you adhere to the GDPR compliance and as well as CCPA. Uh, just, you know, from a high level about Jumio, we provide a KYC platform. Uh, it's know your users, know your customers, any type of digital users that you would need to verify. We built identity verification, authentication capabilities, but also uh, AML and screening solutions to help you verify your customers at the point of entry. So identity proofing day zero, but also uh, their lifetime. So in terms of the, their account with you as a bank or a retailer, knowing ongoing that that person is constantly being monitored and they're screened appropriately. So we work across different spectrums within financial services. We, we've, we've worked with HSBC and Stripe and marketplaces. If you book them room on Airbnb, more than likely you've gone through our ID verification process. Uh, an example of United Airlines, if you scan your passport to check into your flight, um, more than likely you went through a passport scanning, scanning solution, which we are powering for them. So. Um, a little bit about us too, we won some recent awards. Uh, we're very proud of, uh, of our Fast Company Award uh, in 2019. We were a good company. We were listed 29 and Apple was listed 17. And then the use case that we saw for is new account onboarding, user onboarding, ongoing authentication, and helping to replace some of the antiquated models of you know, using data-centric approaches to verification, but applying identity um, solutions with document-centric. And Gartner actually announced uh, recently that 80% of businesses by the time of 2022 are moving in this direction of document-centric um, verification. So using a bona fide government-issued ID as a way to help proof users as they're establishing accounts. And I'll pass this over to you, Jared. Jared and Craig. I think we may uh, have lost Jared, perhaps, but if you want to, I think there were some questions probably that were provided. Um, yeah, I apologize. I was I was on mute there, guys. Um, <clears throat> I just was um, I was saying while I was on mute, I was trying to say um, that I wanted to remind people that uh, at the end of the webinar, I'll put uh, everybody's email back up. So if anybody has any questions for Craig or wants to, um, you know, has a specific uh, question about uh, uh, what Jumio does and wants to reach out to Johnson. Um, uh, you know, I think um, they, they'd be happy to answer any questions directly that you guys have. Um, but let's go ahead and get into some of the questions that were already submitted. Um, <clears throat> first question, I'll throw this one to you, Craig. Um, somebody asked, I think this is this question's real on the nose here for today's webinar. Uh, they're wondering, how does verifying the customer ad account creation lower chargeback risk specifically? Like, what, what's the value there? Sure. Um, just first, I'm just going to mark my scorecard of web car, web webinar etiquette because you've lost today, given how strict you are um, for being on mute. Now, <laughs> verifying customer account creation reduces risk. So when I talked about fraud chargebacks being the the bulk of chargebacks, 
right about 70% of, of, of chargebacks are, are, are for a fraud reason. Split that down into the real criminal fraud. So those are the, the actual, you know, real hardcore fraudsters who've done all the work to steal the card details and get to authentication. Verifying the customer should help to reduce or if not eliminate all of that. So getting better at verification there, but also on friendly fraud. If you are able to, to rebut or represent a chargeback back to the issuer by saying, actually, this is not fraud because I have done the following items of compelling evidence to demonstrate that the customer is who they say they are, then you stand a good chance of winning. So uh, both types of fraud, verifying customers, you know, does a great job in help to helping you out. Yeah, Johnson, did you have anything to add there or did uh, Craig kind of nail it? No, Craig, Craig nailed it, but I think, you know, just to add to that, I think for us, in, in, our, in the current process that we work with a number of our clients, they're, they're capturing their government-issued ID. So having that retained to help, you know, remediate chargeback risk is definitely important because you're having government-issued ID that is corroborated with someone's selfie. So it's hard for any um, retailers or merchants to, if they don't have that information, they, they, they lower their chargeback risk. So I think having that retained information is definitely powerful to remediate chargeback. Yeah, I mean, I, I think just from a chargeback standpoint, one of the things that I think all merchants struggle with is being able to identify what is true third-party fraud and what is, sure. you know, some other issue. So, you know, being able to know for sure that that person is who that they they claim to be in the cardholder and all of the other things, I think, um, is, is powerful for all the reasons that Craig said, both for preventing criminals, but also, you know, giving you the compelling evidence that you would need to, um, you know, uh, dispute the chargeback, but also knowing which chargebacks you should be disputing. So um, certainly high ticket items, I could see a, a value in, in, in taking the extra steps that, that Jumio allows. Uh, all right, the next question, um, <clears throat> I'll throw this one to you, Johnson. Um, when someone is opening a new account, um, what factors might be red flags for fraud? Yeah, I think there are a couple things, but uh, at its core, things like mismatched names and addresses are telltale signs of fraud. Uh, what you also often see is if an account is open with a recently provided ID card that is less than 30 days issued, uh, those are just indicators of potential flaw, red flags, right? So when someone establishes an account, understanding their potential credit history, if they have a thin file, or if you have a social security number with no credit rating, if you're above 25, those are just indicators and data points to determine that this may this account may be potentially red flag. That's fraud. That's, that's interesting, and that reminded me of a, a question. When you, so when your system, your AI or whatever the system is, um, when it uh, is unable to uh, match something, does it reject it, or do, do 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 typically customers just sort of escalate that to human review? Yeah, so we we do. There's there's um, there's definitely different scenarios. We do provide course correction, right? So when someone you know captures their ID, we want to provide a second bite at the apple, right? To make sure that someone is capturing a clear image of the document, okay. right? Uh, in addition to capturing the image of the document, we're extracting all the information. So your first name, your last name, your issue date, your date of birth. So those are data points that you can use to help corroborate, right? So pinging that to your credit bureau, uh, public data source, or any type of proof of residence verification that you would need. So if you wanted to compare Johnson Hall's first and last name to the address actually on the ID, you could do a proof of residence check as well. So those are things that you can use as a way to corroborate the data. So there's there's two elements, the identity proofing, making sure that the ID looks real, but also yeah. you know using that data to corroborate that individual as well. So that's very important as part of the process. Huh. Right. Um, 
Okay, so this question came through, and it took me a minute to kind of understand um, specifically what they were um, asking. But I think I think Craig, we can assume maybe this is somebody from an issuing bank, um, and they're sort of just asking about the um, you know the chargeback guidelines uh, in an instance like this. So one of their customers calls wants to dispute a charge, but it's nine months old. Um, you know. Do they have chargeback rights? What are some of the issues with, um, you know, uh, facilitating a chargeback for a bank that's that old? Um, it's an interesting question, uh, and and um, the whole ar ar arena of online investments and um, trading is 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 quite contentious in the industry, um, and it's becoming interesting because. It, it, it tends to move from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, so the regulator will close it down and will move somewhere else. And often the card schemes are chasing it around. Um, so I, I've seen this happen in Canada, and it all moved to Cyprus, then it all moved to Israel, and, and it's kind of on the move. But it, in terms of customers making contact, so if, if someone's making contact and, and they're claiming a transaction that's quite elderly, nine months old, that, that won't be fraud in the sense of, I did not make that transaction. It is far more likely that the customer in fact did make that transaction but they are they've been missold or have a problem with what we sold to them so i would be dealing with something like that far more down the the dispute route that that it, that it would be as a fraud yeah i think i think that's an important uh, distinction um <clears throat> um johnson what's the best way to introduce online identity verification without uh, completely sacrificing the user experience no, that's, this is a good question, and we get this quite a lot, but I think what it really boils down to is providing a user experience that is Uber-like, right? So just providing the appropriate messaging when someone has to go through an identity verification process. In many cases, they're incentivized to do so because they either want to establish an account or they want to purchase a high-ticket transaction. Um, so making sure that user is constantly being communicated and guided through the entire workflow uh, of capturing you know, any type of ID or biometrics as part of the vetting process, uh, but also providing different platforms, right? If, if, you, if someone goes through the process on, on desktop or they want to convert to their mobile device to complete the journey, having a platform agnostic solution is definitely important uh, and helps to drive conversion. So wherever the consumers are in the workflows, giving them the appropriate messaging uh, and workflows that are really easily to understand uh, as they complete the process. So, so just just for my own curiosity, do you guys have any um, data on specifically how much friction that might add? So, like, do you have any data on how how long it takes the average consumer to to make it through a um, identity verification thing like this? Like, let's say if they have their ID ready to go or whatever. Like, how, yeah. how long does the actual process take? It does depend on the verticals. I mean, the vertical. I mean, if it's a financial service company or online marketplace, but typically it's a pretty synchronous process. So the user, if they have the ID ready to capture the ID, capture the biometric, they're completing in roughly less than a minute, right? In many cases, 30 seconds. What we do on the back end is verify the IDs for the merchant. So we don't provide the results to the user per se, we provide it to the, the merchants or the banks in this scenario. And then from there, they could provide the necessary uh, step ups, right? Um, either they complete the process or they have to do um, other things to make sure that Johnson Hall is indeed Johnson Hall. But in okay. many cases, so, so it's like a self-service option or a, you know have somebody call me type of thing yeah and the self-service option i think having to wait in line for a call center to, yeah. to verify you is a horrible experience right yeah in many cases I, i've had to wait online for 15 minutes to verify myself so if you allow somebody to do it in less than a minute that's going to drive the conversion uh, of that user cool
Um, all right, Johnson, and this is kind of in your wheelhouse too. Um, somebody asked, uh, with all the information on their dark web, is ID verification sufficient to stop the bad guys? Yeah, I think there's there's two things when you Gartner just released it is identity affirmations, identity proofing and affirmation. So there's two components to that is one is document centric, document centric, meaning you capture someone's government issued ID. But also the second component is affirmation, data affirmation. So being able to uh, capture that person's social security number, the address or just their, their PII information, such as your first name, last name and corroborating those two things together. I think you know the dark web has exposed and allowed a lot of potential sophisticated fraudsters to disguise themselves as potentially good customers. Um, but I think there it's very difficult for a fraudster to capture someone's you know bona fide ID, but also their biometrics. So I think having a combination of a document-centric solution, but also a data-centric solution, really provides a end-to-end -end picture of who Craig or Jared really is indeed, uh, who they are when they're going through that process. So um, ID verification is a combination of two things, and I think it's document and data. Perfect. Um, <clears throat> okay, this is another question. I think it takes a little bit of a, um, interpretation, but um, somebody asked, uh, what's the best practice to identify fraudulent hotel reservations? And um, I think the, the key here is what the meaning of fraudulent is, because um, I think that there's a few different ways to interpret this. So, Craig, you had some ideas. Do, do you want to take this one? Um, yeah. So, like as a general rule of thumb, the hotel sector doesn't doesn't tend to attract a lot of um, of criminal fraud. There's not much attraction in uh, in a fraudster living up in a hotel for a few days. But 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 where it is receiving excessive fraud is is perhaps indicative of friendly fraud. But so it's that category that we talked about where it's the genuine customer for some reason is in is looking for their money back because they're, they're likely to be in dispute about the nature of the service or how much they were charged or was it for, you know, extras on the top of a room, minibar or whatever. But also there is a, an element of, 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 of fraud there um, that, that is genuine or, you know, genuine fraud, criminal fraud, which can be attributed to and can be indicated by things like there being a very very short space of time between the reservation and the customer arriving um for for especially for higher ticket hotels or higher ticket hotel chains that would be an indicator of fraud just as, as it is in any in any fast consumable service like an airline or a car rental uh, you're getting access to the goods very quickly you're consuming the goods very quickly before often the fraud can be picked up and reported and and dealt with yeah, I think I think that's the you know it's it sort of goes back it's, it's an idea that we talk about a lot. I mean, part of the issue when you talk about chargeback management or fraud management, all this stuff, it's it's very like a lot for a lot of merchants. You have the the biggest indicator of fraud that they see is the resulting chargeback. But you know, knowing what type of fraud, whether it was third party criminal fraud, you know, in which case prevention would be you know the the most effective solution or whether it's um you know uh, fraud for you know just a malicious customer or somebody that was dissatisfied that um you know sort of leverage the chargeback system um so yeah i I, th I think you're right i think looking for those telltale signs that are specific to an instance where um you know a hotel would be uh, victimized uh, with third party fraud um but I, I imagine that those cases are are in the minority so i think the the most important thing would be to to you know, understand the distinction, um, so that you're not trying to solve third-party fraud or uh, trying to solve a friendly fraud problem um, through third-party fraud mechanisms. Precisely that. Um, 
Okay, this this one um, asked, you know, probably three webinars worth of uh, contents. But um, mm -hmm. if, if we were to give a, a ten thousand foot answer, Craig, what how what would we say to somebody that was trying to win a pre-arbitration dispute? Um, I, I could be glib and say, give me a call, but 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 in in general, winning winning. I mean, these things are like a mini court case, right? So it's just a bit of backwards and forwards. But in general understand your data be on top of your data so understanding everything you can about the customer how they've interacted with you what they've ordered when they've ordered you know all these sorts of things are important how they were authenticated being on top of the rules so you know w without using a service like 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 you know me you can uh, having an understanding of what the chargeback rules are like what are the conditions to make the chargeback and what are the conditions to rebut the chargeback and then when we get to an arbitration stage how you introduce more evidence if you can if you need to and I guess don't give up. The the whole system is somewhat reliant on laziness. Um, so you know, issuers file chargebacks, merchants don't respond. That's taken as a sign of laziness often, and is a great win for the consumer. Equally, uh, issuers can be guilty of not picking up with the cardholder when their evidence comes back. So so I think don't give up. Continue uh, pursuing the case. Um, only then do you do you do you often get a fair outcome. One of the big myths about chargebacks is that it's not fair. Actually, if you pursue the thing until the very end, it is designed to deliver a fair outcome. That might sound, and people will maybe disagree with that statement, but it is often deemed as unfair because people don't think it's penetrable, so don't understand it enough or give up too early. Yeah, that's that's, that's interesting. I, th I think the only caveat that I would say, and and maybe I'm, I'm misunderstanding, because I know Visa just changed the, the um, you know some of the language around this, and so I, yeah, I get a little bit lost about what's it, what's a pre-arbitration, what's arbitration and stuff. But I, but this is if, if if you're talking about second chargeback, so that is to say you've you've overturned a dispute, um, had you know, but then the um, the customer you know refiled it. Um, yeah, I think I think the only caveat to that is just just make sure that you have the evidence on your side, because because Craig, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't there additional liability? Or um, you know, like if, if if a merchant loses the second uh, chargeback, don't they have a some fees and some consequences beyond just the loss of the revenue? Um, so so things things are changing in in both Visa and Mastercard around this. So I mean, when I asked that question, I, I kind of tried to be balanced because whether you are the receiver or the sender of the pre-arbitration makes a difference. But if you're at the point where um, then. So and and also I should say I mean and we've got content on this all over our website I think but yeah. Mastercard are moving most of the second chargeback cycle out of the the system. So if you're at the the point where we're we're at a a late stage in the process and you're looking at moving forward to an arbitration decision, so you're unhappy with what has happened, then oftentimes there is um there is a, the the disincentive of a of a filing fee of, of around about five hundred US dollars to to um to put you off essentially but that would be charged to the losing party so there is a risk in and so when i say fight to the end you know do so if you think you're right but um make sure you're right and make sure you have the evidence um i always know but but yeah there is there is a financial risk yeah if, if, if they're claiming they didn't make the charge and um you know jumio is uh you're, you're a client of jumio's and you've got you know their photo and and all that information i'm if we can spend 30 seconds on that, that that's a great thing so if you are a merchant who has made an unsecured e-commerce transaction so you haven't done 3d secure now in theory you're liable for the transaction if the customer claims fraud if however you've used a solution like jumio up front and you've got a fully authenticated picture of a driving license that you've matched to the customer you have some compelling evidence in your in your work bag now 
you represent the transaction with the evidence to say, hey, I'm pretty sure it was the customer. The way that the visa rules in particular at the moment are written is that the issuer can say, do you know what? The customer says it's still not them, so I'll just continue the dispute. And as far as the, the system is concerned, the, 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 the case is closed. Your compelling evidence doesn't really mean that much unless you are prepared to go to the next step um, and arbitrate. Now, with evidence as strong as that, I would always arbitrate because a little watch example. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that was. Are you, you got everybody still here? Yep, still here. It was uh, it, it just dropped off for a quick second there. But okay, all right, all right. Well, we're we're getting we're getting a little bit fast. So let's um, what's the next question? Um, oh, this is this is a this is a long question. Um, Craig, you got a you got a sixty second answer to this question, so everybody can kind of get back at their day. Um, oh, it says what online payment trends uh, post COVID nineteen should um, airline merchants look out for? That's a, so I feel like that's an entire webinar, but is there something an, that comes to mind? It's an entire webinar. I mean, I think I mean, you, you know, I mean, volume is down clearly, but but I mean, customers are customers have become. I think with the, I mean, there is an entire webinar there, but but the one thing I would say about airline is the customers have become educated about chargebacks in the pandemic, so they know what they're doing. And when they've not had a refund or they've been given the runaround about how long it's going to take or they don't understand disclosed conditions about refund policies, change policies, where you will and won't do things, then they know that the chargebacks give them quite a wide berth to just get their money back really quickly without an argument. So I would say airlines, and I know this anyway from some of our clients, are looking very closely at, at policies and procedures because customers are in the driving seat, I think, as a result of having made several billion dollars worth of claims in the months of April, May, and June, and July of this year. Yeah, it was, um, yeah. Okay, all right. Well, I, I put um, uh, Craig's contact information along with uh, Johnson's back up on the uh, screen. So if anybody wants to reach out to either of these guys, I'm sure that they would be um, happy to answer your questions and engage with you and um, tell you a little bit about, about uh, what, what our respective companies do. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today and sticking out uh, uh, with us to the end. Um, we'll try to get this uh, replay up and out to everyone as quickly as possible. I appreciate your time. And uh, if you did ask a question, we weren't able to get to it um, either before the webinar or during. Um, just uh, keep an eye on your uh, email box. We'll make sure to send some information over to you that addresses your concern. Uh, thank you, Johnson. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, Jared. Thank you, Craig. Pleasure. Thank you, Johnson. Good day, everyone. Bye, guys.